Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of elder abuse and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Many of us grow up being told to respect our elders, but most societies do a poor job of following through on that. As people move up in years, they need more and are typically able to give less. Far from respect, some see our elders as a drain rather than a resource. It's a tale as old as the Industrial Revolution, and it held true when Amy Archer Gilligan first encountered this issue in the early 1900s. But where everyone else saw a problem, she saw profit. Targeting one of the most vulnerable populations in society, she created an industry she was then free to exploit, with absolutely no one watching for potential danger. It was a proverbial hen house open wide to a devious, ravenous fox. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we followed Amy Archer Gilligan on her journey from well-respected entrepreneur to suspected killer. This week, we'll see how Amy's desperation makes her sloppy, exposing her as one of America's deadliest female serial killers. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In 1914, Amy Archer Gilligan, then about 47 years old, was under investigation by reporters at the Hartford Current. The reason? Michael Gilligan, her husband of just three short months, had died at the age of 58. And of all things, this perfectly healthy man was brought down by a stomachache. At least, that's what the death certificate said. Curiously, it also listed valvular heart disease as a cause of death. 
though there were no records of Amy's physician, Dr. King, or any other doctor for that matter, treating Michael for anything heart-related. It just didn't make sense. Especially to Carl Gosley, local reporter for the Hartford Current, and Michael's longtime friend. He'd been investigating Amy since her first husband died four years earlier. And in that time, he'd amassed plenty of evidence that things in the Archer home weren't on the up and up. The trouble was, most of it was circumstantial. But Michael's death felt like an obvious red flag, and Carl's editor at The Current, Clifton Sherman, was inclined to agree. So with his boss's support, Carl's side project of keeping an eye on Amy became a full-fledged investigation, which meant The Current would need to reach out to law enforcement. You see, homicide units weren't a common thing in the early 1900s. Local police departments just didn't have the time or money for investigations, so it was plenty common for reporters to do the investigating and then go to the police with their findings. Once Sherman and Carl had gathered their evidence and smoothed out their theories, they planned on reaching out to Connecticut's state's attorney, Hugh Alcorn. However, at this point, the whole town knew Carl had been investigating Amy for years, and they knew why. So Amy probably suspected the current would take their case to the police soon, if they hadn't already. That's why she attempted to head them off at the pass. She planned on winning Alcorn over to her side first. In March, only a month after Michael's death, she wrote the state's attorney a postcard inviting him to come tour the Archer home. Before we continue with the discussion of Amy's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Up until now, Amy had proven herself as a Jedi-level mind-bender. There were few people she couldn't win over to her way of thinking, especially when she played her doing God's work card. As a result, her neighbors believed she was a good Christian woman for far longer than they reasonably should have. Now, she was hoping her skills would work on a much bigger fish. Manipulators have all sorts of tricks they use to maintain their status and control. One such tactic is called playing the servant role, which is when a manipulator claims to be serving a higher purpose or working toward a noble goal. Though ultimately, Alcorn didn't accept her invitation, it was a bold move. One Amy felt she had to make because Michael's death had raised a lot of eyebrows. Having lived under the town's microscope for years, Amy was keenly aware of being watched and discussed. But at this point, her supporters seemed to be dwindling. As the spring carried on, someone even circulated a petition to shut down the home. The bid failed, but it was becoming increasingly obvious that Amy was wearing out her welcome. But even if she had wanted to leave and start over somewhere new, that would require money the thing Amy just never seemed to have. Thanks to the will Amy convinced Michael to sign the night before he died, a judge gave her power over his nearly $5,000 estate. But there was a grace period required before she could actually get her hands on any money. She had to publicly announce his death and allow time for any creditors to come forward with claims. Meanwhile, Amy's creditors were always calling. She needed money fast, 
but all her beds were full and she couldn't count on a big cash injection until she brought in someone new. But luckily for her, she never had to wait long for a bed to open up. So she carried on with business as usual. And in April, 89-year-old resident Charles Smith's health began to fail rapidly. In the two years he'd lived there, he hadn't so much as had a cough, but over a matter of days, he got very sick. One night, Charles took a turn for the worse. He was coughing and choking, struggling to breathe. And by the next morning, he was dead. Amy called his brother with the sad news, telling him Charles had died of shock, which is what they called a stroke at the time. But like always, Amy had someone waiting in the wings to claim Charles's bed. This time, she was negotiating with a couple. On the one hand, it was great news, double the income in one neat package. But they needed two beds, and Charles had only freed up one. Still, Amy invited her new Marks, Lauren and Alice Gowdy, to visit. As usual, she was an impressive tour guide and host. She took them around the parlor and dining room, full of seemingly happy residents. Then she showed them the only room she had that was large enough to fit two beds. The Gowdies looked around, clearly impressed, but also confused. The room was full of someone's things. It was obviously occupied. Amy told them not to worry, the room was going to be vacant soon. The couple left, wondering if they'd just stepped into something shady. Despite their reservations, Amy continued to write to them, guaranteeing that the room would be ready by the first week of June. But the Gowdies weren't about to pay $1,000 for a room they weren't even sure was really going to be there. Amy could tell she was losing them. She needed to act fast. Here's the thing. The room Amy promised to the Gowdies was already occupied. 60-year-old Franklin Andrews had been living in the home for over a year, sharing the room with a fellow retired farmer. His favorite sister, Nellie, lived nearby in Hartford, and the two were in near-constant contact. In his many letters, Franklin regaled Nellie with tales of his wonderful matron. He was so happy to be useful to Amy, doing yard work and keeping the other residents company. Despite all of the deaths around him, as of May 1914, Franklin was happy as a clam at the Archer home. In fact, he was about to start a big new project for Amy. He'd been put in charge of repainting the fence out front. Since he was busy working outside all day, Amy set his dinner aside and served it when he came in for the night. Then, the next morning, Franklin woke up in a great deal of pain. As the rest of the home went about their day, Franklin only got worse. Eventually, he threw up all over himself and his bed, so his roommate summoned Amy, who said she would call Dr. King. But the doctor didn't arrive for hours, though he insisted he rushed over as soon as Amy had called. So either he was lying or Amy waited a long time to call him. Regardless, Franklin had been vomiting all day and was wavering in and out of consciousness. After looking Franklin over, Dr. King gave Amy medicine to treat his nausea, something he prescribed a lot at the Archer home. 
Before he left, Dr. King told her to call if things got any worse. And of course, they did. Just a few hours later, Amy called Dr. King once again, but it was too late. Franklin was too far gone by the time the doctor returned and was dead within the hour. Conveniently, he died on May 30th, right on schedule for Amy's expected new residence. As usual, Amy had his body removed quickly. Then the hearse had barely left the driveway when Amy moved Franklin's roommate to Charles Smith's old room. Then she had another call to make. When Amy called Franklin's sister, Nellie, with the news, she was stunned. The death was so sudden, and she demanded to know exactly what happened. No matter how long Amy tried to explain, the whole situation made absolutely no sense to Nellie. A perfectly healthy person like Franklin didn't just drop dead. Refusing to believe a word of Amy's story, Nellie went to see her brother's body for herself. Amy had mentioned boils on Franklin's neck, but Nellie didn't see anything of the kind. In fact, Franklin looked so normal, she almost expected him to wake up at any moment. Now Nellie was convinced that her brother had been the victim of foul play. She just needed someone to help her prove it. So she reached out to the state's attorney, Hugh Alcorn. Though it wasn't the first time he'd heard about the situation at the Archer home, Alcorn still didn't think there was enough evidence for an official investigation. Undeterred, Nellie went to the next best place, the Hartford Current. But while Nellie reached out to anyone she thought might listen to her, Amy got in touch with the Gowdies once again. On June 1st, just over a day since Franklin's death, she sent a telegram letting them know their room was ready, just like she'd promised. Up next, Amy's enemies join forces and the noose tightens. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed, confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. In May of 1914, Amy Archer Gilligan lost yet another resident at her home for the elderly and infirm. 
60-year-old Franklin Andrews had been healthy and helpful right up until his sudden and convenient demise. But now, Amy's primary concern was making sure her newest fish were still on the line. Lauren and Alice Gowdy weren't exactly thrilled with Amy at this point. She'd been acting pretty shady, showing them an occupied room and then asking for immediate payment. To smooth things over, Amy apologized for the delays and frustration. Tugging on their heartstrings, she explained that she'd been dealing with the loss of a cherished resident and hoped they would understand and forgive her. To seal the deal, she even offered them a bargain, $500 each for a lifetime contract. It was half price. She played the couple like a pair of fiddles, Ultimately, the Gowdies really wanted to move to the Archer home. They were tired of relying on friends and family, constantly moving and worrying. And Amy's offer was just too good to pass up. It was a deal to die for. As the Gowdies prepared for their final move, Amy was still dealing with Franklin's family. Days before the Gowdies were due to move in, Franklin's sister Nellie returned to the home. This time, she had her other siblings with her and a lot more questions. They wanted to know if Amy had ever asked Franklin for a loan. Without hesitation, she said she never had. At that, Franklin's brother handed her a piece of paper. It was a letter in which she had done exactly that. Like the smooth operator she was, Amy pretended to have forgotten all about her request. After all, Franklin hadn't lent her the money anyway. But it wasn't that simple. The letter was dated just days before Franklin died. So Amy had asked for money, Franklin had refused, and now he was dead. It sounded like motive to Nellie. And when she wasn't satisfied with Amy's explanations, Nellie took the information to Clifton Sherman at the Hartford Current. Nellie's complaint was just the break Sherman had been waiting for. Finally, they had a specific incident to investigate and people who were willing to talk. In addition to Carl Gosley, Sherman put one of his full-timers on the case. Robert Thayer was a fresh set of objective eyes. While he agreed that the circumstantial evidence looked bad, he wasn't quite convinced it pointed to murder. And if it was murder, the investigation hadn't turned up anything that pointed to Amy as the culprit. Unlike Carl, who had known Amy for years, Thayer had never met, let alone actually spoken to her. So that's where he started. Amy had probably been wondering when The Current would send someone to interview her directly. After all, they'd been snooping around her business for nearly five years at this point but she must have been surprised that it wasn't Carl Gosley on her doorstep. Though Thayer said he was there to write a story about the home, Amy knew what he was really after. Still, she welcomed him in, giving him a quick history on the way to the parlor. By answering Thayer's questions, Amy finally had the opportunity to tell her side of the story on the record. She'd been privately answering neighbors' queries for years, but now was her chance to set things straight for good. 
The danger was Amy was never good at sticking to a story. This was probably because she was carrying around what psychologists call extraneous cognitive load. According to psychologist Michael Isink, this is brought on by intense emotions, like anxiety over whether you're going to get caught murdering the people you're meant to be caring for. Basically, Amy's brain was working overtime managing her emotions, which left her fewer cognitive resources for lying, which meant she wasn't careful about what lies would be easy to disprove. Right off the bat, Amy told Thayer that the home could hold 14 residents, when in reality, she usually housed 20. Then, probably hoping to gain some sympathy, Amy admitted it was hard running things on her own. Residents like Michael and Franklin had made things easier for a time, but they were both gone now. She was all alone again. Even though Amy had brought him up, she seemed annoyed when Thayer asked about Franklin's death. In fact, she acted as if she didn't know that was the reason Thayer was in her parlor in the first place, and the story she told him about Franklin's death varied wildly from what she'd told others. Thayer took careful notes and looked around the home before he left. Then, since Dr. King lived around the corner, he paid him a visit to verify Amy's facts. But when Thayer asked about the possibility of poisoning, the doctor lost it. Dr. King was tired from years of defending Amy against what he thought were preposterous rumors. He insisted that he would have recognized the symptoms of poisoning if there were any, but there weren't. End of story. Of course, the story was far from over. Carl Gosley had noted the Archer home's death rate at the start of his investigation, but Thayer wanted to check the numbers for himself. Over the last three and a half years, the Archer home had lost around 40 tenants. That averaged out to almost one death every month. The trouble was Thayer had no idea what a normal average was for an elder care home. Luckily, by 1914, more had sprung up in Connecticut and around the country, so he did some digging. Thayer calculated that a reasonable death rate for a facility the size of the Archer home would be around two a year. Amy was hemorrhaging tenants at five times that rate. Even accounting for natural deaths, the numbers suggested that Amy had killed at least 35 people. Confronted with those numbers, Thayer was finally convinced there was a murderer in the Archer home. So he and Sherman set up a meeting with the Connecticut State Police Superintendent. Before the meeting was over, the superintendent called Hugh Alcorn, and it was the third time that was the charm. With the superintendent's recommendation, the state's attorney was at last ready to open an official investigation. Sometime later, the four men reconvened to discuss the evidence. Alcorn wasn't happy with how much of it was circumstantial. Worse, none of it actually pointed to Amy herself. It was clear that someone was killing residents at the Archer home, but they had nothing that pointed to who. They needed someone on the inside to tell them what was really going on, and Alcorn had just the woman for the job. He called Zola Bennett, an undercover private investigator for the state police. 
Zola posed as a wealthy widow looking for a room in the home. She and her money were very warmly welcomed. Amy never checked anything other than potential tenants' financials. All that mattered to her was that the check cleared. We don't know when Zola moved in exactly, but it was probably sometime during the summer or fall of 1914. Then she got to work searching the home and Amy's records for anything useful, but there wasn't much to report at first. It was possibly around the same time that Zola arrived that the Gowdies also moved into the home. Alice and Lauren Gowdy settled in quickly. It was everything they'd been hoping for. Alice had an old friend living in Windsor, who she took daily walks to go visit, and Lauren preferred to spend his time relaxing around the cozy house. They were so content, in fact, that in mid-July, Lauren handed over two parcels of land to Amy. We don't know why, but he must have been pretty sure that he and Alice would be happy spending the rest of their days in the home, because those parcels were presumably the last of the Gowdy's financial assets. Which meant they were no longer of use to Amy, and their days were numbered. After five happy months, 69-year-old Alice began complaining of stomach troubles. Up until then, she'd been a perfectly healthy woman, so she chalked the pain up to indigestion from Thanksgiving dinner. But that night, she started vomiting profusely. Amy offered her some medicine, probably lemonade, which was a common home remedy at the time. But the next morning, everything was worse. Alice continued to deteriorate, but Amy waited five days before calling for a doctor. When she finally did, she summoned Alice's personal physician, Dr. Emma Thompson. When she arrived in Windsor, Dr. Thompson was blown away by her patient's condition. Alice's pulse was weak and she didn't have a fever, which the doctor saw as a sign that her immune system had quit. Still, Dr. Thompson got to work treating Alice for what she assumed was a stomach flu. And miraculously, she actually seemed to get better. She stopped throwing up and was finally comfortable enough to get some sleep. But Dr. Thompson didn't leave until she felt sure Alice would make a full recovery. But two days later, on December 3rd, Amy called again. She was pretty sure that Alice was dying, and by the time Dr. Thompson got back to the Archer home, the only thing she could do was confirm Amy's prognosis. The doctor left Amy with morphine she could use to keep Alice comfortable until she passed later that night. After Alice's death, Amy thought she'd pulled it off again, but she didn't know that she had a spy in her home, and Zola reported the events of Alice Gowdy's demise directly to Alcorn. But she couldn't exactly use the home's phone for her secret reports, so she sent word by letter. This low-tech way of reporting urgent findings might explain why it took until the following year for anything to happen. In March of 1915, Alcorn sent an officer to interview Dr. Thompson. By then, the doctor said she was about to come see the police herself. Three months later, Alice Gowdy's death just didn't sit right with her. Dr. Thompson said that when she'd returned to the Archer home the day Alice died, 
Her patient was blue, cold, and already showing signs of rigidity in her limbs. None of these symptoms were typical of her initial diagnosis, cholera morbus, a.k.a. the stomach flu. She must have been too shocked to process it at the time, but now Dr. Thompson was sure Alice Gowdy had been poisoned. Up next, the truth about Amy is revealed at last. Now back to the story. By March of 1915, it was clear Amy Archer Gilligan had no hope of a fresh start. Her reputation in Windsor had tanked, and she rarely left her house to avoid the glances and whispers on the street. Somehow, around the time of Alice Gowdy's death, Amy heard about the official police investigation. It was the thing she'd feared most since Carl started poking around in her business all those years ago. With law enforcement involved, her problems were so much bigger than just some nosy neighbors and reporters. So she tried once again to invite state's attorney Alcorn to visit the home so she could get control of the story. Alcorn had ignored Amy's first letter, but this time he wrote back. And it wasn't the response Amy was hoping for. He didn't confirm the investigation, but he did express his concerns particularly about the circumstances surrounding Franklin Andrews' death. Amy's reply was full of blatant, easily disprovable lies. She tried to explain that Franklin was, in her words, very feeble for months before he died. She insisted that he'd been covered in abscesses and boils, which she claimed his sister saw. Of course, you'll remember that Nellie saw nothing of the sort. But perhaps Amy thought she was safe to make such shameless statements because Franklin was already six feet under. Her actions may seem desperate and even delusional. However, vehemently denying accusations had worked for her in the past. When confronted, gaslighters will say anything to make their accusers doubt their judgment. Adamant denial, coupled with other manipulation tactics, is often one of the most effective forms of gaslighting. So Amy also tried to guilt Alcorn into believing her by saying his accusations hurt her feelings. She even invented people who were supposedly on her side and urged her to invite him for a visit, because if he would just come see for himself, he'd see she was telling the truth. We don't know much about what Amy was up to during the rest of 1915, though it's likely she did her best to keep a low profile. But we do know that at least seven more people died at the Archer home from May to December of that year. Meanwhile, Alcorn had officers conducting interviews with the families of former residents. Zola Bennett, his spy inside the home, had sent him the names of anyone related to those who had died suspiciously. The list included the family of a man named Charles Smith. And boy, did they have a lot to say about Amy. According to his siblings, Amy had wrung the poor man dry. Over the two years that he'd lived in the home, she had systematically convinced him to turn over all his money to the tune of about $3,000, the last of which was collected shortly before he died. 
As investigators continued interviewing families into the spring of 1916, this became a familiar story. But though they were helpful in establishing timelines and motive, the interviews only resulted in more circumstantial evidence. So by May, Alcorn was ready to go after something more concrete, and investigators were given permission to exhume Franklin Andrews. Alcorn instructed his officers to meet in the cemetery under cover of darkness. He didn't want anyone getting a whiff of their plans. The last thing they needed was for someone to tip off Amy now. They moved as secretly as a late-night gathering in a cemetery could, and Franklin was dug up and brought to the undertaker's tool shed. Alcorn had asked Dr. Arthur Wolfe, the state's chief pathologist, to perform the autopsy. And the first thing he noticed was the body didn't smell as bad as a two-year-old corpse should. The next was that there were no signs of the boils Amy kept talking about. Intrigued, Dr. Wolf gathered tissue and organ samples to take back to his lab, where he found signs of arsenic poison. Importantly, the poison was in Franklin's tissue, which could only have happened if he ingested the arsenic. In other words, it couldn't have been from the embalming process. Finally, Alcorn had definitive proof. Someone had fed poison to Franklin. Though it wasn't fingerprints on a glass or an eyewitness pointing directly to Amy, he was confident enough with his case to move forward. On May 8th, Alcorn called Carl Gosley to his office in the morning and gave him the honor of signing Amy's arrest warrant. It seemed like a fitting bookend to an investigation that he'd started years earlier. Once that was done, the arresting party loaded up into police vehicles and made their way to Windsor, taking the long way to avoid causing a scene by going through town. When Alcorn knocked on her door, Amy might have thought he was taking her up on her previous invitations. At least, that was the front she put on as she welcomed the group into the home. They questioned her for about an hour, exposing her many lies, like the fact that she was not a trained nurse, which was a story she'd been telling for many years. While the questioning happened inside, a crowd started to form out in the street. Somehow, word had gotten out that the law had at last come to the Archer home, and it traveled fast. As the day wore on, the crowd outside continued to grow, then, around 6 o'clock that evening, Alcorn and Gosley finally took Amy into custody. She was escorted to the Windsor Town Hall, where she was formally charged with the murder of Franklin Andrews and sent to Hartford County Jail to await trial. When Alcorn alerted the offices of the Hartford Current about Amy's arrest, it erupted in a flurry of continuous activity. Clifton Sherman's newsmen had been writing and saving stories about the Archer case for years, and now they could go to print with everything. On May 9, 1916, the floodgates opened. The front page of The Current was almost entirely dedicated to news of the investigation and Amy's arrest. And The Current became the source for everything readers could possibly want to know about the sensational case. 
From her cell, Amy knew she was being annihilated in the court of public opinion. Her reputation had been catastrophically damaged even before her arrest. Even though she was as far down as she'd ever been, she was still not out. After two days in jail, Amy released a lengthy statement to the press proclaiming her innocence, doing her best to make herself sound as pathetic as possible. She explained that she had no money and only ever wanted enough to pay for her daughter's education. At the end of the statement, she really laid things on thick, saying, It seems as though all the world has turned against me, but I try to have faith in God. My love for my baby girl will give me strength to live until my innocence is proved. But that day never came. Over the next few months, more of Amy's victims were exhumed and examined. And in the end, she was indicted for the first-degree murders of Franklin Andrews, Alice Gowdy, Michael Gilligan, Charles Smith, and a fifth person who remained anonymous for most of the proceedings. Amy's trial began in June of 1917, and all through the many days of testimony, Amy sat still and silent as a statue. Perhaps she was trying to seem strong for her daughter, Mary, who sat behind her every day. Or perhaps Amy was done performing. She'd played many parts over the years. Dutiful daughter, loving wife, doting mother, Christian neighbor, selfless servant. But none of these characters had completely masked her true self, a cold, emotionless killer. And everyone in town was fascinated by Amy's story. On July 13, 1917, the courtroom was packed with people hoping to witness the end of the historic case. After the lawyers' impassioned closing arguments, the jurors only needed four hours to come to their conclusion. Guilty of murder in the first degree. Murmurs filled the room as the news filtered back to the farthest reaches. Though no one raised their voice, the reaction was deafening because of the sheer number of people. The judge called for order, bringing down his gavel until the crowd fell silent. The state's attorney had the right to request an immediate sentence, and that's just what Hugh Alcorn did. That was when Amy seemed to come back to life. She shook her head and whispered no to herself over and over. When the judge sentenced her to death by hanging, Amy truly broke down. She cried uncontrollably and her breath was erratic. It was more emotion than she'd shown in years. Despite her dramatic performance in court that day, Amy never actually hung for her crimes. Shortly after her verdict was released, the governor of Connecticut, who happened to be an old friend of her lawyers, stepped in and assured she was given an appeal. At the second trial, Amy tried her hand at the insanity defense, having laid the foundation by acting strangely during her time in prison. She also revealed that she had supposedly been addicted to morphine for many of the years she'd been killing. This time, she pled guilty to second-degree murder and received a life sentence for her trouble. 
but she was sent to prison in 1919 instead of the slightly cushier hospital she'd hoped for. No matter, Amy had a tendency to get what she wanted in the end. She remained on her best behavior for five years, even earning the title model inmate at one point. Then in July 1924, seven years after her initial sentencing, Amy allegedly turned up her act. If she was indeed feigning mental illness, she did it so well that she was eventually sent to Connecticut Valley Hospital for an assessment. And that was where she stayed until her death in 1962, around the age of 94. In the end, no one knows for sure exactly how many lives Amy cut short, but estimates hover around at least 40, making her one of the most prolific killers in American history. However, that macabre legacy isn't the only impact Amy left on the world. As an early professional of the aged care industry in the United States, she blazed a trail to ensure that the nation's elderly would have somewhere to live out their days, even when they had nowhere and no one else. Of course, that industry has its flaws, even today, but Amy's actions also helped lay the foundation for protections against anyone who might have followed in her footsteps a little too closely. During her trial, the state of Connecticut began work on a bill requiring government oversight of private care facilities. Thanks to Amy, any foxes have to be that much smarter to get access to the hens. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Amy Archer Gilligan, among our sources, we found The Devil's Rooming House by M. William Phelps, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 